Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show and episode number two of Learning How to Learn. If you've already caught episode one, then this will be a very natural follow-on. If not, I would encourage you to check it out, maybe even after this episode, if it uh, prompts some interest or curiosity in you. And I also want to remind you right up front, too, that this is not all my material. What I'm looking to do here is communicate things that I have learned from a free course provided by Coursera that is called Learning How to Learn. It is one of the most popular courses Uh, on the website and so you're able to go through that yourself and in fact hopefully I'll make a case for why that would be important even after listening to what I want to share with you today. So with that in mind let's get underway with learning how to learn part two and in this week of the course the big focus is on first of all the idea of chunking Secondly, talking about something called illusions of competence, which I found hilarious and yet completely relatable. There's also a section on study methods and then the ideas of overlearning and a little bit of neurobiology as well. So this idea of chunking is really the idea of breaking a complex task down into little bits of information. And right from the beginning, I have observed that that can be a massive difference with how people approach a new task. Because to look at anything from the very beginning, if you've never done it before, can be quite overwhelming. And when we don't know to do this, it's often the reason people give up from the very start. You know, I couldn't possibly. That that kind of thinking, it can be a place that, that arises from. So if you're going to use a technical definition of this, chunking is really just bits of information that are linked through meaning or through use. So that's as opposed to just having basic pieces of memorization of facts and things like that. So what could be an example? Um, Even if you were to say bake a cake, for example, uh, you might understand the role that flour plays and you might have used sugar in something and you might use baking powder and that kind of thing and understand how to turn an oven on. But it's bringing those elements together that will help uh, create an end product. So for my mind, I tend to find that that presents itself when I'm just dealing with basic information as opposed to chunking. When I'm having a conversation with somebody, and it happened very recently, where they started spouting off something that may have actually been useful to the context of the conversation, but because it wasn't in any way linked through meaning, that person sharing the information didn't have an understanding of the other people in the room and what their arguments were. It just stood alone as here's a factoid. And because of that, it was very hard to integrate. So hopefully I've provided a bit of a context here about what chunking is is really about. And if we're looking back to the first week, we talked also about the different models of learning that are loosely described as focused and diffuse learning. And so focused learning is much more about applying your direct attention to something, whereas diffuse mode is more of a a free thought state is possibly the best way I can think to describe it. Um, examples were given last week as, uh, sorry, in the last episode, not last week, uh, were given about people like Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison and how they allowed themselves to relax and get into a very open-minded creative state to see what ideas would emerge. So all to say that chunking is a focused of, uh, sorry, is a function of focused learning. So it's dedicated attention. And I used this actually in regards to a course that I had to facilitate very recently. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about this before, I also work in the fields of adult education. And I had to cover quite a complex topic. 
And so when looking at it, I realized it's something that served me quite well, even though I possibly couldn't have described it in exactly these terms, was that I apply this process of chunking where I look at it high level first of all and say, okay, what are the basic elements in here? Can I get my head around the basic concepts? And then once I've learned those, we'll see how those parts connect together. I'm going to go into this in a little more detail um, in just a moment, but that is an application of this idea of chunking, taking a complex topic. And incidentally, it's not just an academic thing as well. It could be even as simple as, uh, say, learning a song. If you are learning how to play the guitar or something like that, you might, first of all, listen to the overall song, get a sense of the, its timing and, and the feel for it. Uh, you might learn the melody, then you might learn the words to the song. Um, I had an experience recently that I've also shared about where I perform in a jazz big band as well. I'm a vocalist with them. And I had to learn a four-part, well, my part, in a four-part harmony, which is something that I'm not very well practiced in. I haven't done a lot of that. I'm used to being just a solo vocalist up front, doing my thing that way. And so when I looked at the songs that I had to learn, I was initially quite overwhelmed by them because they were much more complex than anything I'd ever had to learn before. And so some of the things that I did was, first of all, to listen through and just get a sense of the overall melody and feel of the song, and then start to learn the words for it as well. And then what I did was that I noticed in the structure of the song, there were kind of three parts to it. So there was kind of like a part one, and then there was um, instrumental and kind of like a scat component to it. You know, the diddly dee bop bop doo dap stuff. That's the technical term, by the way, the diddly doop da bop bop And then there was another more... I guess, traditional vocal segment. And so what I did was realizing that the, the scat part in the middle was much more difficult for me to get my head around. So I started with the first part that was a vocal segment and then the last part and then learnt the other piece last and then tried to link all three together. Um, what I found was difficult for me, as you can hear my pages turning in the background, was that the challenges I experienced were more particularly around this idea of harmony because it's not... Uh, it's very difficult, different to sing in, I mean, regular harmonies to begin with can be a bit of a challenge, but jazz harmonies are like complex for the sake of being complex sometimes. I think it's a legitimate criticism of jazz sometimes. It's like there's, there's music and then there's jazz and then there's what I call jazzy jazz, which if you're not a jazz musician, it just sounds like uh, an orchestra fell down the stairs. The keys and the way the notes work together for this song in particular were very difficult for me to get my head around. And so that took a fair amount of time and that was compounded by what I realized was probably the most difficult factor of all was that I wasn't used to also singing with other people. And so I would constantly get lost in where I was supposed to be. And so just that element of learning how to hear myself and hear other people and hear the band was one of the the chunks that I had to get my head around. What am I listening for? How much of myself do I need to hear? How much should I be listening to somebody else? And it's the kind of thing that you can't necessarily learn out of a book. You have to find a feel for it. And so that's my application of that as well for chunking. It's not just an academic thing. It can also be for music. It could be for learning how to ride a bike, uh, anything like that. So ultimately it is about connecting those steps together that's what makes it really useful so we often miss that part too so we've got those moments of disconnected knowledge so chunking again is about finding a chunk of knowledge and then finding a way to link it to something else um, and I feel like for me it's something that has helped with my broader approach to learning that 
recognizing connections between things helps to amplify the learning process. It's something I feel like I've always got, fortunately enough. So that's why when I read this, I thought it's a really valuable section to share with people. In terms of how you actually form a chunk, there's three basic elements to it. So the first one is that it is about undivided attention. And that can also include things like putting your phone away, for example. Very hard to learn anything with your phone on the table or in your pocket in some cases as well, if you're easily distracted or just highly popular, you know, getting tagged and everything all the time. But you do want to have undivided attention. Then the second part is to try and understand the basic concept that you're looking at. Um, and then the third part is to gain some overall context. So once I understand the basic concept of, um, let me think, if I'm talking about that song again, right? I understand the basic concept of, okay, I kind of get, get the words. All right. I kind of get my part. I kind of get, um, you know, the overall melody that we're, we're going for here. For that to be really useful, the third part is about gaining context. So where does that sit in relation to other things? Okay. So it's those three parts, un undivided attention, understanding the basic concept, and then making sure you understand the context around that concept. Because when you go to apply something, apply some learned information, that can again be how you end up with a lot of useful info or interesting info that you can't really do a hell of a lot with. Um, and so you've got a bottom-up and a top-down approach to this as well. The bottom-up approach to chunking is through practice and repetition. There are certain things that, again, for example, with that song, um, I had to learn via just got to do it again and again and again and again, though there is also something to be said as well, and I think this was covered in uh, the previous episode, that you also are better to do shorter periods of regular practice than singular periods of drawn out practice. It's like going to the gym as well, right? I mean, you got one person who works out for say, you know, half an hour to an hour, three or four times a week versus one person who goes to the gym for nine hours a day, once a month, uh, you know who's going to get the better result, right? Even if the allocation of time looks similar. So that's something to be aware of. For practice and repetition is a way of forming this uh, this chunking foundation, I think is the word I want. And then you've got the top-down approach. So it's being able to see where what you've learned fits in to the overall idea you might be looking at. For something like that, it may be, if I'm going to use again an academic example, or maybe that, that course that I was telling you about that I had to facilitate, uh, having a look through the index and skimming through the pages, first of all, to just get a sense of where does this overall content head? What's it trying to achieve by the end of it? What is success going to look like? By the end of this, I'm going to know what. Um, so this was actually something too that I, I ran through with, with the group to make sure that at each section we said, okay, look, if you look in your facilitator guides and things like that, it says, this is what this section is about. Okay. Let's take a step back, and now I want you to explain it back to me in your own words. Um, and it's amazing how much people's confidence in going, yeah, yeah, I know what this is about, suddenly became a lot less certain when they had to explain it back to me in their own words. And that's what leads us into this next part, which was the illusions of competence. I love this term. It's so good. And I was very much guilty of this in my own life. And in fact, I hope from now on too, it's going to make my approach to new material a lot more humble, I think, is the, is the best word to use. Because what it suggests is that when you have information in front of you, 
it's very easy to fool yourself into believing that you understand it. It's a trap. The information that's laid out in front of us, if it's done well, is nice and sequential, and we can look at it and understand a basic, what's the word, uh, coherence to the argument, I suppose. We can understand that what has been put in front of us, yeah, that makes sense that A plus B equals C, however that might look. Um, however, that is an illusion to, to believe that because you can understand what you're reading in that moment, that you fully grasp the concept. And so what illusions of competence would encourage us to do is to test ourselves. In fact, one of my favorite academics on this um, front in this area is Richard Feynman. He's a, a physicist who has long since passed away, but he talked about if you really want to understand something, the best thing that you can do is explain it to somebody else. And I found that to be incredibly powerful. When you think you really understand a concept, you go, okay, how would I explain this to somebody else in my own words? And it's amazing how much it reveals the gaps in your own knowledge immediately. And so then you're able to go back and say, okay, I obviously don't completely get the basic concept here. Or it might help you see how you maybe get a basic concept, but you don't see how it links to the overall construction of what you're looking to do. You can imagine that for advising or instructing somebody how to use a piece of equipment, for example, or a new system that you may have in your business for achieving a particular end. You can maybe describe each part, but why each part follows the one before and how it builds on what's to come can be a gap in our knowledge until we actually have to explain it to somebody or that they have the courage to ask us why. And as a side note, I would also say from a leadership perspective, that is a responsibility for all of us to take um, very seriously if we want to develop strong teams, is to have an environment that is safe for somebody to say, I don't understand, or to ask why, because it can also reveal the gaps in our own knowledge. And I think that's where our egos need to be put in check as well. We want to be the ones who have all the answers to everything, and yet creating an environment where someone can ask us why can show us where the gaps are and make sure that we can really, truly deeply understand what we're looking to communicate to other people. Now, connected around this idea of allusions to competence is this thought around study and how do we really make sure that we have learnt what we believe we have learnt. And so what was surprising here for the researchers behind this course was to bring people to the awareness of recall as one of the most effective methods of learning. And in other words, being able to look away from what you've been reading and then trying to see how much of it you can recall in that moment. And it was surprising because they questioned students about what they thought, that what the students believed was going to be the most effective means of learning anything. And recall was believed to be quite ineffective. Uh, the students themselves preferred things like um, concept maps and that kind of stuff. So now you know. <laughs> Speaks for itself, right? Recall, the ability to look at something, then look away and going, how much of this do I actually remember? Um, it's also a means of, of testing yourself and, and self-testing within the realm of learning how to learn is also a very fundamental concept. Finding ways to test what you have learned is a great way of revealing where the gaps lie and connecting to what I said before about the, the Feynman method of teaching somebody else. Uh, if I'm teaching you and you're able to provide me feedback, that is in some ways a, a test as well, right? So I'd encourage you to try that out. It's really, really powerful. Um, and it also, this, this idea of 
recalling information connects a little bit with the diffuse mode of learning too, where once you've been deeply focused on something, one of the most effective things you can do to discover if you really understand it is to change the environment that you're in, maybe go for a walk, uh, change the location that you're in and see how much of the information comes back to you as well. Now, hopefully too, and something that comes to mind for me as I get to this part of the content, uh, hopefully what you're starting to pick up and build confidence in is that this ability to shift between the focused and diffused mode of learning is something that you can have confidence in. These are principles that if you're aware of them, you can trust that your mind is building more neurological connections between you know, other neurons, and that's helping you to embed knowledge within your mind. I have observed that one of the things that stresses people out is their lack of confidence in their ability to learn something. Not even just how complicated the information is, but they haven't learned that, well, your mind works by applying dedicated focus and then taking a break and then returning to that information and challenging yourself to look at you know, different components of it as opposed to just relearning, overlearning the same information again and again. And we're going to talk about that again in a, in a moment as well, this idea of overlearning. So with learning how to learn and why I would encourage you as well to go through this course yourself afterwards, it'll give you a sense of confidence in that you can approach unfamiliar topics with a sense of confidence because your mind has a way of working that will ingrain information. But we just don't know what that is. We never learn these kind of principles when we're at school or at university. We're just given a stack of info and then we're left to figure these things out by ourselves. And I genuinely believe even people who don't believe that they're that intelligent could actually be particularly intelligent people who have just never been taught a method of learning how to learn that applies to maybe more academic topics. Because I often find those people who also don't think they're that intelligent can go on to do very well in areas like business where they have to learn incredibly complex things. I mean, I'll be honest, I think business is far more complex than academia. And I will happily die on that hill if you want to argue with me, uh, argue with me about it. There's so much more to it that you have to learn. But because the approach to entrepreneurship, for example, is a lot more trial and error based, which in many ways is what these elements in learning how to learn teach us, uh, those who didn't think they were that intelligent actually do really, really well. So that's my encouragement out of that section for you. Anyway, a bit of a tangent. I didn't intend to say that when I started off writing all this, but there you go. Um, the next part of the section of learning how to learn, this is week two's uh, material, goes into a little bit more of the neuro, neural biology and talks about uh, three different um, neurochemicals that are uh, what's the word, related to learning. And so the first one of these is acetylcholine. And if I can have a little confession moment, by the way, I told you that I like to apply these principles that we're learning as we go along as well. And so I thought, ooh, neural chemicals, I want to try and remember the names of these. And so I can't tell you how delighted I was when I realized I could recall acetylcholine. <laughs> I mean, I've already heard of the other two before, but it's like, ooh, acetylcholine, I want to remember that word. And so I did. That's my story. Thanks for listening. Uh, acetylcholine is uh, related to focused learning. So paying attention and creation of long-term memory. Uh, then we also have dopamine, which a lot more people have heard about. And that is more related to rewards and specifically more wanting, not even necessarily achieving or um, receiving the reward itself. It's the sense of uh, predict predicting future rewards. It's going to be great when... 
and that's what people look forward to. So that's what dopamine is related to. Uh, and in fact, it's a lack of dopamine that is the cause of Parkinson's disease, which I found very surprising. I, I don't exactly know how those two then are particularly connected or correlated, if there's anything there in terms of um, people's experience of life that can cause them to experience lower dopamine production, but there it is either way. And then the last one is serotonin. And this is a chemical that's particularly related to so social standing. And if you are familiar with Dr. Jordan Peterson, there was a section in his book where he talked about lobsters. And the purpose of this chapter has been lost a little. So I'm going to give this my attempt at clarifying it. What he was trying to say was that our, our brains have a system that is regulated by serotonin. And it's a very ancient uh, system. So much so that it goes all the way back to lobsters, which I think you would agree are quite different from humans. The point of the chapter in Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, was to say that the serotonin production in the brains of lobsters uh, affected them so much in regards to social standing that we need to be aware of how much, even though we are so divergent from lobsters as a species, if we can see in lobsters that serotonin and social standing affects their sense of well-being so much we need to be able to acknowledge that for ourselves as well as a slight tangent to this too i've often thought about how to best help people who are in poorer situations and this connects a little bit to body language people who are low in serotonin um, who have, have a sense of low social standing you can probably already imagine what some of their physical traits might be you know slumped shoulders head down that kind of thing um, so that knowledge of social standing i wonder in regards to how you get people from what you consider lower socioeconomic um, situations or cultures around people who are of a you know perhaps doing better in, in society just so that they can be exposed to that kind of environment I, I know there could be a little bit of a risk here and this is why i'm thinking out loud when i say it that you you could be just reinforcing this kind of alpha beta kind of situation which i know some people don't like that terminology but it serves me for time so there you go uh, but I also feel like being around people like that who are more powerful, have a sense of their own ability to influence their world, can be really, really helpful for someone who has come from a disempowered background. And just keeping that person, the, the, the more disempowered person, around others who share that same disempowered worldview and expected them to change, expecting them to change their station in life, I think is incomplete. There are some who, who are able to do it. My, my point here is that I feel one of the most helpful things we can do is to get people who are in a stage of, of life that we want to improve, maybe those who are struggling with poverty or certain types of family breakdown, and think, how can we expose them to a social group that is outside of that station? How can we get those people to meet people who are doing better than they are? And I recognize the challenge in it, which is why I'm, I'm thinking aloud with this, because generally those, those groups don't mix. People who are doing very well in a profession that pays them 100K a year aren't likely to meet with those or um, hang out with those people who earn you know, less than 30 grand a year or have multiple jobs or are in minimum wage roles in service industry jobs, hospitality, those sorts of things, um, retail. So that is the... That is the open-ended 
question or challenge that I have right now as it relates to things like serotonin and social standing. How do we take a person from that low position um, and help them be around people who can influence their, their thoughts about themselves so as to affect the serotonin uh, element of our well-being? open-ended question actually i'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to send them through i normally wait till the end to say this but um you can send an email through to the andrew curtis show at gmail.com um if you've ever considered this or you've got experience with working with um people who are struggling and how we basically elevate their uh, their station how do we help them to do better what are the things that you've seen have been most effective um but concluding this thought going all the way back to this idea around uh, neurochemistry and, and motivation what motivates us to learn uh so i've talked about acetylcholine and dopamine and serotonin uh the fourth element is just emotion in general and positive emotion is more conducive to learning than negative emotion we have a challenge in New Zealand in particular with uh, youth suicide and depression and anxiety. There is a somewhat compounding element to this when you've got students who suffer from it because it makes it harder to learn. It's a negative uh, reinforcement feedback loop. So where possible, if we can help improve somebody's state of mind about themselves, uh, they can start to perform better in a learning environment, which again then can become a positive reinforcement loop as well. But that's, that's motivation for you. So as we start to get to the uh, the final sections of learning how to learn week two, um, there are some thoughts around what the benefit is of having a library of chunks and understanding the interconnection between different things, how it makes it easy to learn from different areas. Uh, my thought when I looked into this was to share an observation I've had that learning is exponential. So if you imagine uh, a bar graph, a bar graph? No, a line graph. Sorry, so you've got an X and a Y axis. Uh, axis. Imagine a, a line that goes at 45 degrees. I think my, my observation is that people observe learning to be like this. If you have a very complex topic that it is this slow, steady progression uh, along this line until you get to the very, very top, it's going to make it um, very discouraging if you don't feel like you're making progress on an even upward gradient. What I've learned instead is that learning is a lot more exponential. So for that, I want you to imagine a line graph that's more of a, a typical, like think of like a bell curve, right? But only one half of it. So it starts in a long, slow, gradual incline, then suddenly hits a bit of a corner and then starts to go up at a exponential kind of rate. That is what I have discovered learning is much more about. Once you have got a, a base base. Uh, level of knowledge across a, a number of areas it makes it easier to learn more so the more you know the more you can know but it's not just additive it's exponential and I say this because I want to encourage people who are starting out when you're first learning and, and starting to get this library of, of chunks together of, of basic understanding of thoughts that are linked together through meaning and through use you can feel like you're making very slow progress and the pace that you're learning at now you can believe that is the pace I'm going to continue to learn at forever and so you see somebody else who you might perceive to be far ahead of you and think, well, but based on the speed that I'm going now, I'm going to have to live to 150 years old to catch up with them, right? Here's the truth. If you continue at the pace that you're going right now, what you'll start to find is that at a point in the future, you're going to suddenly start to get an exponential benefit because you start to recognize principles across multiple areas. That's the... 
high-level application of chunking. Once you have a bunch of information that you understand can, and how it can be applied to different areas, you start to recognize things and go, oh, that's this again. Oh, I've seen something like this before in another area. And so you can much more readily learn another thing. Um, I had a conversation with a friend recently who can play something like 10 instruments, right? It would be easier for her to learn the 11th instrument than it would be for me to go at the moment from effectively zero to one, right? So what I mean by that is that you might look at it as still, it's still just an increase of one instrument, right? I'm going from zero to one, she's going from 10 to 11, but she will go from 10 to 11 much more quickly because she understands a lot more of the basic principles, okay? Now, the tragedy, I think, is that people look at that kind of knowledge or understanding and think, oh, well, that's just musical knowledge, um, but I'm not good at whatever. Now, in my personal opinion, I think that that is much more a reflection of where interest has led your energy to be directed in the past. If you are focused or interested in a particular topic, you will want to learn more about it. You start to understand more of the concepts and principles, then you start to link them all together, and then before you know it, you are flying in a particular area. And then you think, oh yeah, but that's only this type of knowledge. One of the applications of what we're talking about here with learning how to learn is that the principles here are not bound by subject. Does that make sense? It's not bound by subject. So if you can apply these principles to learning a song, you can learn them to applying applied nuclear physics if you want to. Sit on that for a moment. If you want to understand physics, you can. In fact, I'll tell you one thing that surprised me recently was that I have been very focused on how you really help somebody for quite a while. So these ideas that are generally grounded in psychology and a little bit of philosophy as well, because it connects to, to meaning and, and purpose and truth and that sort of thing. What surprised me was that when I started to look into these ideas, I started to see that it's impossible to help a person without also understanding their economic conditions. So your economic, you know, your socioeconomic position in life is fundamental to your state of well-being. And that's on a psychological level as well, which kind of relates to that serotonin idea from earlier. So the point here was that I started to become interested in economics. And so I started to read up on economics. And this was a surprise to me because I had never previously felt a great affinity for the subject or a great interest in it. But when I saw it was connected to something that I was interested in, suddenly the interest and motivation was there. And I was surprised how much more quickly I could onboard those ideas. So that's an application for you in terms of how you can apply this um, across multiple topics. Uh, getting towards the end, and we are now talking about effective study methods. And not being, um, what's the word, not being tied down by what you feel like you already know, not banging away at just what you already know. Because again, when it regards to academic study, when people think of study like that, it tends to be this constant revision, you know, rereading over and over and over again. Uh, and it has some utility, but not a lot. And in fact, a better approach is described as deliberate learning, where we focus on the more difficult aspects of what we don't already know and then taking a moment to you know again step back and see their interconnectedness there uh, there's a great word that is introduced and i hope i can pronounce this correctly as well which is um, einschlung which is a german word for mindset again this idea of a thought pattern that can stop a new thought pattern emerging and i think that's a risk that you need to be aware of particularly when you are trying to get a high level overview of something at the very beginning that the goal at that point is to understand the basic concepts at each level 
But we also want to be aware that we have a tendency to want to reinforce the, the ideas that we already have. It's something called the backfire effect as well and, uh, and cognitive dissonance um, that we like to reinforce information that believes what we already think. So be aware of that challenge. In fact, there's a, a, a quote that I found also quite amusing, which is that science advances one funeral at a time. Um, and there was a guy by the name of Thomas Kuhn who uh, applied this across a number of different fields and identified that a lot of breakthroughs in all sorts of different areas tended to come from either people who were very new in the field or who were not trained specifically in that area. The application being that there are gatekeepers of knowledge, I suppose, in different fields. And it could be law, it could be, you know, medicine, could be anything. Um, and this is where, when I come back to the earlier idea of a library of chunks, I found that this is actually a perfect example of what I was talking about. Because when I read this and it talked about science advancing one funeral at a time, I looked at the basic principle of, okay, so what's, what's it trying to say? Well, that you get people who have established ideas about how things have to be and it stops new ideas coming up. I thought, wait a minute, that's not unique to science. That seems like a common point of human nature. And so again, to think of it in terms of technology, uh, in terms of social sciences, politics, religion, um, anything like that, um, I was able to see that and go, wow, actually that principle holds in a whole bunch of different areas based on this principle of Einstein, people having a, an ingrained sense of how things have to be. Um, and so the, one of the last points on this idea of effective study is introduced around the idea of interleaving. So the ability to jump backwards and forwards between problems that require different solutions and strategies. So here, what we're looking to say is that instead of just reinforcing the same information over and over again, get the basic idea and then try to apply it in other, you know, kind of non-book examples or skip forward or backward in the material that you're reading to make sure you understand the relation between those things, as opposed to just going through A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, and in fact, again, if I'm using that example from my own uh, professional world, there was a whole bunch of different sections that were involved that we needed to cover. And there were certain elements that I even found after delivering this material where I realized I only really understand this in regards to what I talked about immediately beforehand. So if I had tried to skip a couple of points earlier, it might be harder for me to relate the information um, you know, that I'm looking to cover at that point. Now, why is that relevant? Well, often when you're having a conversation with somebody, you know, points can be raised that you can say, oh, actually, that is something that I'm going to be covering for you in, you know, another couple of minutes. But there's, you know, a couple of topics we need to cover in between there and now. Um, it can help lead to a much more engaged conversation. You can listen more deeply to people. And so this is also a confession of mine to say that as much as I understand these principles, it's, it's also causing me excuse me, to, to, to revisit, revisit, that's the word I wanted, revisit my understanding and challenge myself too about how well I interleave topics, how well I can move backwards and forwards between source material um, and get a sense of them overall as opposed to just going, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, let's do it again, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, do it again, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you might be better to go B, G, D, F, A, something. I don't know what letters I haven't used, but you get the idea, right? And so the last thought that I want to leave you on, but I'm going to take a drink of water before I do that. Mm, lovely. This will turn into an ASMR channel before you know it, uh, is the law of serendipity. I love this. 
Love this. And it connects a little bit to that idea I said before, too, about entrepreneurial people who don't believe they're very good at school uh, and yet find they can exceed in business. The law of serendipity is this, is that lady luck favors the one who tries. So good. When it comes to learning a new topic, ultimately, the, the lucky things that you need to happen, because some things are out of our control, right? But lady luck favors the one who tries. If you really want to learn something, there's no better approach than just to try. Uh, and riding a bike is probably the best example that I can think of insofar as you can read about learning how to ride a bike as much as you like, but there are certain elements that you will only learn by trying. But it's amazing how many things can line up to support you in something once you've decided you're going to commit to trying. Uh, and in fact, if you read, read, if you listen to one of the podcasts I recorded just a, a month or two ago, I talk about my own journey over the last year or so and how I've got to making some major changes in my own world and where I believe that's taking me to next. A, a massive number of the things that I believe have happened are a result of this law of serendipity that lady luck favors the one who tries but with that we are going to finish on this episode number two of learning how to learn so i hope you've enjoyed it again remember you can do this course for yourself on coursera and i would also encourage you that just because you've heard me talk about these things doesn't mean you completely understand them either right laws of uh, illusions of competence rather so i'd encourage you to check it out it's just a four-week course and it's free to do so check it out on Coursera that is learning how to learn remember too that you can uh, like and share this uh, episode with anyone who you think may benefit from it and you can get in touch with me via the Andrew Curtis show at gmail.com or go to the Facebook page for the podcast as well where this will be posted alongside the other content that I create um, you can go to facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis show